0: I'm wondering if you can tell by the way that you handle your money, whether you believe in God or not. Can you tell by the way that somebody spends their money, saves their money, gives their money, if in fact there is a God in heaven? That really is what I hope to talk to you about this morning. We're in the second week of a series that we're calling Someone Else's Money. We're recognizing the blessing of God, the fact that He has entrusted us with resources that we are to steward on His behalf. But the reality is that for a lot of us, the way that we relate to money is the way that everyone else around us relates to money. In fact, I have to admit, the stress that I had as I drove here this morning, when I, you know, turned right fra- off of Stafford Road on, uh, oh good grief, space the name of the street we're on, Beckman. Thank you, nearest star of the B, and I had the wrong one in, in my brain. But I turn on Beckman, and there I drive by the Street of Dreams, and I'm thinking, oh, these houses are, well, not at all like my house. And then I had to, my heart had to do a check right away. Is this really what I'm hoping will happen when I manage my resources? Better question than that. Is this really all there is? If this is really as nice as a house gets, the street of dreams, I maybe need to recalibrate a little bit. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, is this recalibration that I hope will happen in our hearts as we think about what the Scripture says about how we relate to money. So my role is a little bit different in this than everyone else's, because my role in this is to sort of open the, the Bible really to the middle, (laughs) to Proverbs, to Ecclesiastes, to Job and Psalms, to the wisdom literature of the Bible, and talk about what wisdom the Bible presents for us about how we relate to money. And so, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes is, if you go to the middle, you're going to be pretty close. It goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and you're right there in the middle of your Bible somewhere. And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 5. But before we do, I, I wanted to give just a brief overview of how the Bible presents wisdom. Because if if I could hope anything for you, it would be that you would be a wise Person That you would be a person who embraces Jesus, who has become for us our wisdom. But if you're going to be a wise person, you're going to need, first of all, the fear of the Lord. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is that characteristic that makes the difference about whether or not You are wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9, verse 10. And so as you think about wisdom and you think about it with respect to your resources and your finances, what does it mean then to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord means that you live with God as your singular audience. That's really all it means. It means that you do everything in your life with regard to God. So that the thing that causes you to examine your life, that causes you to think about decisions you make throughout the week, the thing that recalibrates you is what does God think of this? So that you're living with this respect for God's opinion above all other opinions. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And see, that's, the Bible does just a great favor for us by reminding us practically about how you do that in the wisdom literature. You have, oh, You have several of the Psalms. You have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job as sort of the the central focus of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And those books fashion a view of life lived in the fear of God. And this view of life is simplified and boiled down to two things, really. There are two ways. There are two paths that you could travel. One is in fear of the Lord. One is not in the fear of the Lord. So Psalm 1 is just one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And it speaks first of your friends. and says, blessed is the man who walks not in the, in the counsel of the ungodly or, or walks not in the path. How, how did this start? Good, my brain is not working this morning. The man is blessed anyway. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not weather, and everything he does will prosper. That's one way. You delight in the Lord, you're careful about your companions, and he says, everything you do will prosper. But then the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. And so there are two ways. There's there's the way of the righteous who delight in God's word, who, who choose their companions carefully, they're like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And you're presented with a decision which one of these do I want to be? How do I want to live my life? The one is in the fear of the Lord. The other, not. The summary then of Psalm chapter 1 points this out most clearly. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so you're presented, even at the beginning of the Psalms, with a choice. Which path am I going to live? Which path am I going to get on? How do I want to live my life? And in some respects, these two paths are oversimplified. They're there for you to see, to, to choose, but they're pretty simple. Looks like black and white. It looks like uh, good and bad. It looks like something that it's going to be one or the other. There's going to be no you know gray area in between and wouldn't it be great if life was like that all the time? It's just not that simple. And so as you read the Proverbs, you're going to say the righteous person does this, and the wicked person does this, the wise person does this, the fool does this. And you're going to see how clear it is and how the blessing of God rests on the wise person. And then you're going to do your best. It's to motivate you to live a wise life, to live in the fear of the Lord. And you're going to do that And problems are going to happen. And calamity is going to strike. And you're going to say, wait a minute. The way of the righteous? Tree planted by the water? Wicked? Chaff? It's not working. That's why you have the book of Job in your Bible. You see, one of the things that... The book of Job does is it tells us that life sometimes is a little more complicated because if you're going to be truly wise and live in the fear of the Lord, you're going to realize God is not bound to some formula. God is not simplistic. But rather, there are there are reasons that sometimes you don't know for why things go the way they go. And Job's friends had a um, strict... Uh, legalistic approach to how they applied these things and they said job god blesses the righteous he doesn't appear to be a blessing you therefore you're not righteous thank you i need friends like you too but you see what they're they're the foil they're the ones who are fools so that we see job here there's righteous man clinging desperately to faith in god living in the fear of the Lord and still suffering, and then we're really flummoxed, right? How do we figure out what it means to live a wise life? And so we press into living in the fear of the Lord, to living with God as our audience and Him, His opinion mattering more than any others to us. And then you have... The book of Ecclesiastes, which then also helps us right the ship and helps us get the perspective that we need on uh, a life lived in the fear of the Lord. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a life without fear of the Lord. It is a life, it is a description of life lived under the sun. That's their favorite phrase in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun. Which is hode it's sort of his special way of saying you're going to live life like a normal person without reference to God who is above the sun. You're going to live life under the sun. And so as you as you do, what is life like then? And he presents us with that uh, picture again so that we have to hang on and say, how do I want to live my life? What does it mean to walk in this world as a wise person who fears God and who values God's opinion and who thinks about the world the way that God thinks about the world? That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. And that is the beginning of wisdom. And I just want to say that applies to every area of your life, even to your pocketbook. Maybe especially to your pocketbook. And so, may God help us to live as wise people. Now, there's one other thing that I want to say about this wisdom literature as a way of getting started. And that is just sort of the way that uh, the Hebrew poetry, that most of this wisdom literature, the, the, the way that that Hebrew poetry expresses itself. If, If we were to do English poetry, uh, you you would be able to do English poetry because you have read Dr. Seuss. And you know that it rhymes. Right? Or if I said, Roses are red, violets are blue, you'd expect me to say something, something, and you too, right? Because you know it's supposed to rhyme. And there are rhyming words in English there are rhyming ideas in Hebrew poetry. And so there the, the rhyming ideas here in Proverbs 15, 27, I picked one that had to do with money because there are a lot of them that have to do with money. So I picked one that had to do with money. And I wanted you to see the first rhyming idea, part A, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. And you're to think about that and you're thinking, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain, I wonder if I am. I wonder what that looks like in practical terms. I wonder if that uh, firm that I'm investing with cares about this. So you're supposed to ask all these questions, and then you're supposed to read Part B because it's essentially Part A is here is an idea, what's more, Part B. Part B expands or explains or contrasts with part A. And, and so the, the uh, additional idea is, but he who hates bribes will live. And you're to say, hmm, bribes might explain a little bit about unjust gain. And you rhyme those two ideas together in your mind. And it, you have a more complete picture of what it means to have unjust gain there, you see. And so when we look now in Ecclesiastes, We're going to see it written in this way with this sort of poetic idea device. And we're going to see it present to us a life without wisdom. A life without the fear of the Lord. A life under the sun. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 5 beginning in verse 10. And I told you that the way that you look at money, the way that you relate to money expresses whether or not you believe there is a God in heaven. And he starts off right there in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so vanity under the sun is one sort of key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity is the other. It is empty. It is vaporous. It's light. You have the Hebrew word glory, which means weighty or heavy. Substantive. And then you have this word that's translated vanity, which means it's just vapor. It's just smoke. It's just the fog that we had earlier this morning that's already gone. That's what he has in mind That life and love of money is like a vapor that's gone. And you won't be satisfied with it. And I was thinking about that even as I drove here and drove past those homes and I thought, would that satisfy me? Would it be satisfying to have this grand and glorious home with these beautiful fixtures and these glorious uh, countertops and all of these all of these things. And the reality is, if that's what I love, it wouldn't satisfy me. Or it might satisfy me for a week or two weeks or a month and then I run, I meet my neighbor. <laughs> right? He lives across the street and in all, an equally nice house who has a different thing that I like better. Who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. And then he begins to apply this and says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now you're to, you're, you're to begin to think about this uh, and what this has to do with wisdom. Because some of us, maybe all of us, have wanted more than we have at some time. We've desired that God would bless us and make our lives easier by having more. That we'd be more comfortable, more satisfied that we'd have more. And here he says, when you have more income, you have more outflow. There are more people who, uh, (laughs) when goods increase, They increase who eat them. And there are all kinds of, I mean, you know, all kinds of examples of large companies, even who have so many employees that maybe they don't, you know, the the net profit isn't any bigger than a mom and pop shop who only employ two people because it's all eaten up in expenses or rent or whatever. And so, what advantage has their owner? Except to see those dollar bills fly by, they don't fly into his pocket. They fly close by, and then they go to somebody else's pocket. And that's you're to you're to think about that. You're to, you're to think there. You're to sit there and think, what do I really want out of my life? Is more really the answer? Then he says, "Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he's little or much." Okay, what's more? See, part B. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Isn't that amazing? Here's a laborer who probably gets paid at the end of each day, doesn't have any savings, doesn't have any extra, and he sleeps great but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Have you ever had that experience? It's, it's some holiday. It's a feast day. The family comes over and you just have this enormous meal and you're sleepy, but for some reason you don't sleep that great. And he's suggesting here that there is an advantage to having less rather than having more. And then he says, this is a grievous evil that I've seen Under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Now here we're, for the first time at least this morning, presented with this perspective of under the sun. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. And I I wanted to spend a moment thinking about this because my opening question was, can you tell there's a God in heaven by the way you relate to your money? And the reason that I pose the question that way is because under the sun assumes there's not. And I'm going to suggest to you that we live in a world that is under the sun. We live in a world that has defined a transcendent God as non-existent. The world came into being without Him. The scientific processes control the way the world works. Not a transcendent God who is providentially sovereign over all things. And you're going to have to say, golly, I haven't really thought about that. How do I want to live my life? As though there is a God in heaven? Or as though there isn't? And see, the choice in some respect, you don't get to choose if there's a God in heaven. There either is one or there isn't one. But you do get to choose how you're going to live your life. And you're going to have to figure out, do I want to live as though God is in heaven or as though He's not? And as though He's not is under the sun. And the problem with under the sun, the problem with living as though there's not a God in heaven, is that that is all you have. It is as though you live in this box. And your life travels from one end of the box to the other end of the box. You get to the end of the box and it's finished. And that's all. And you have to say, really? Is there really nothing outside of the box? Is there really no transcendent joy? Is there really no happiness? Is there really no God who loves and cares? Is there really? And I just want to suggest to you, you are confronted with this all the time. This, of all the things that stress me out as a pastor, it's this. It's that we're confronted with life under the sun all the time and we don't even see it. We're so, we're so used to it. We're so used to a commercial on TV that suggests to us that our, we'll be happier with this lawnmower or with this soap or toothpaste or insurance or whatever it is as though that's the most important thing in this world. So if you're going to live with the fear of the Lord, you're going to live to say, I want to live my life as though there's something outside the box. Because I believe there is. And you realize that loving money inside the box only helps you for a little bit. It isn't really that great. And he continues. And I, um, I'm getting carried away here, Sorry. There's a grievous evil that I've seen in the Son. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's the father of His Son, but He has nothing in His hand. And so, you know, you've seen this too. Maybe you've even lost money in a bad venture. You had it. And then you lost it. And you have to say, hmm... That didn't make me very happy. I had what I thought I wanted and then it's gone. He's a Father of somebody Son but He has nothing in His hand. There, there's nothing to show for this life. And He came from His mother's womb and He shall go again naked as He came and shall take nothing for His toil that He may carry away in His hand. There is no question about it. You came into this world with nothing. You will leave with nothing. And you're going to say that in between times the thing that's going to make you extremely happy is to have stuff? Can't you do any better than that? That's his question here. You're not going to be able to take anything away. And are you going to define your life by what you have? This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Think about that. If you already know, you're going to end up with nothing. You're going to work your whole life for it. And in the end, there's going to be nothing. That's not near as motivating as it's made out to be. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And so now, now he's, he's got the knife in on us, right? Now he's twisting it. Now he says it isn't just that you're going to end up with nothing that should make you realize, am I living a life in the box? Am I living with God in view or God not in view? But the reality is, if money is your thing, then it's going to make you lonely. That's, That's the whole idea of eating in darkness. Eating is supposed to be a time when the people you love are around the table. Eating is supposed to be a time that is joyful because of the people that you eat with. And yet, the person who's loving money is going to lose that. In much vexation or stress and sickness and anger, your money is not going to change whether you get this coronavirus or not. I mean, your money can't even buy you uh, hand sanitizer anymore. (laughs) And the reality is, you are stuck if that's all you've got. And so his, um, his encouragement for us to be wise is, you need to rethink the way that you approach your relationship to money. Because if you don't, you're just living under the sun. You're living like the people in the box. You have no explanation or hope for anything that is transcendent or eternal or outside that narrow box. And so that's His first warning here to us is that you're not going to take anything with you and you have, to be, you have to be really careful. Now, He's going to make a concession here that is really as painful as His warnings. He says in the next verse, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Okay, if you've heard eat, drink and be merry, that's uh, this is where this comes from from Ecclesiastes. For tomorrow you will die. Okay, that's uh, that's elsewhere in Ecclesiastes. Here he just says enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. You can live in the box you can work hard in the box and then your life is over in the box. And that is your lot. What he's saying is, "Under his son, there's no purpose there. It's just it's fatalistic. I mean, some people have said, a God in heaven who is sovereign over all things, that's fatalism. You can't believe in that. Let me tell you, You're going to believe that this 70 years, 80 years, all there is? And there's no purpose to it? And you start with nothing? You end with nothing? And you're going to excuse me of being fatalistic? I'm sorry. But that's not going to stick. This is your lot. This is all you get. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is a gift of God. So the gift of God is to have wealth and the power to enjoy. He's going to come back to that in a moment. But that's a gift from the Lord. Because if God doesn't give it to you, you don't get the power to enjoy the wealth that you accumulate. And here's his explanation. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He will not long remember the days of his life. I mean, some of you have said, hey, man, the thing I'm going to do with my money, I'm going to make memories. (laughs) And he says, you know what? Even those memories don't really last if all you have is the box." And so here he gives us another warning. He concedes that, yeah, there is, there is a place for money inside the box, but it's a small place and it's a fatalistic place. But then he says, there is an evil I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. And he, he rehearses this several times in the book of Ecclesiastes where and there are lots of reasons why you might... Gain wealth, possessions, and honor, and have somebody else enjoy you might you might die in an heir who didn't work for those things, might squander them that's one of the things he talks about in Ecclesiastes. You might just be working so hard that you don't have time to enjoy it. I mean, how many times have you heard of people working hard until they retire only to weeks after months after they retire contract some disease or pass away of a heart attack or you know have their life fall apart for some other reason because they don't have the thing that defined them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. You see, under the sun here, all of these things He's describing are people who love their money. People who love their home, love their possessions, love their car. Love the things that give them status or identity in this world. They're not people who live with the fear of the Lord. Who have who measure their purchases and their giving and their saving and their spending and their earning all by what does this mean for eternity? What does God think of the way that I'm living my life? That's the fear of the Lord. Otherwise, it's vanity and a grievous evil. And He says, if a man fathers a hundred children... And lives many years, so the days of his life are many. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that his stillborn child is better off than he. So, that's one of the things that I love. One of the reasons I love wisdom literature is the hyperbole. It's the exaggeration. So, let me begin by saying... Suppose a man fathers a hundred children. In an agrarian society, when you need a workforce, that would be fabulous. (laughs) A long life is supposed to be the picture of blessing. But, a long life with an unhappy soul is awful. It's awful to have your soul damaged by the choices you make and the things you love. The things that promise happiness that don't fulfill. That's just awful. Then he says, so he has no barrel. These hundred children don't even care about him when he's done. I want to say, that a stillborn child is better off than he. And then he goes off to, on to say, why? For this stillborn child comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. It finds rest and he doesn't find rest. See, what He's doing here, and I hope it's happening in your heart, is He's making us think, how do I want to live my life? What am I living for? Am I really thinking that the, the way that I'm accumulating stuff or spending my money or enjoying my vacations or retirements without reference to who God is and what God is doing in the world, is that really going to satisfy me? Or would I be better off if I really didn't have things and really didn't live this way. And he says, even though he should live a thousand years twice over. There's your exaggeration, right? Even though he lives a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth Yet his appetite is not satisfied. So if you look back at chapter five, verse 10, where we started, we started by saying, "The one who loves money will not be satisfied." And now he says, "All the toil of a man is for his appetite or for his mouth, yet he's not satisfied." And see, that's one of that's one of the conflicts that we run into all the time. Is that there are things in this world that promise us happiness. That promise us fulfillment. That promise us that we will be better off and they don't keep their promise. And so, I just wanted to put it to you. See, my, I'm, not, I'm not really here down in the weeds of you know how much you're to save or give or spend or make or any of that. I'm really up here at the 30,000 foot level to invite you to, to live a bigger, grander life. A life that has God as its singular reference point. To live with the fear of the Lord. To reject, well, first of all, to recognize that most of the time, without even thinking about it, you're living as though you're in the box. And to, to recognize the decisions you make and to say, Is, what does God have to say about this? What does God think about what I'm, what I'm shopping for online? What does God think about my Amazon account? What does God think about this? And then to step back and say, is it really going to make my heart happy after all? You see, because it's a basic orientation of life that He's talking about here. He puts us back on these two paths. On these basic orientations. Are you going to be on the path Of the righteous or the path of the wicked? The path of the wise or the path of the foolish? Are you going to live with the fear of the Lord? Or are you going to disregard the Lord? And so He invites us then to have our hearts satisfied and to trust in the Lord. One of the things that I... I hope that you recognize here is Pastor Scott's preached a whole sermon without talking about Jesus. That's the problem, right? Pastor has preached a whole sermon here and he hasn't gotten around to talking about the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And I want to point out why I haven't done that. Because Ecclesiastes... Ecclesiastes is contrarian. Ecclesiastes invites you to consider what if? What if there was no gospel? What if there was no Christ? What if there was no God in heaven who loves you and gave his son as a satisfaction for his wrath? What if there was no hope for heaven? That's what Ecclesiastes is asking us. You see, while I want more than anything want you to love and embrace Christ, part of doing that is pausing and stepping back and saying, what if it's not true? What if there is nothing outside the box? You see, the reason Ecclesiastes invites us to do that is because the prospect of life under the sun. A life with no transcendence. That is insulated from God or from anything supernatural. That kind of life is a life that is not satisfying. It is a life that invites despair. It's a life devoid of any enduring purpose. And so you're to stop and think about that from Ecclesiastes. But more than that, you're to stop and say, no. (laughs) No. That is not what I want. What I want in my heart of hearts is something more. Something different than the rest of the world around me lives for. I want to be happy, not just now, but I want to have a living hope that makes me happy forever. And that's Essentially, that's what wisdom literature is supposed to do for you. It's to bring you to the crossroads for you, for you to say, I'm going to go this path, not this path. May God help us all to find the path of wisdom that leads us to Jesus who Himself is our wisdom, who Himself lived perfectly the path of the righteous lived perfectly the path of wisdom so that we too might follow in His footsteps. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that You have loved us in Christ. I'm thankful that we have the, the hope of eternal life and that we're not uh, merely fishing around uh, for some shiny thing that's going to make our hearts happy, but rather we can find substance and meaning and purpose in eternity. In knowing that there is a transcendent God who loves us and who holds us accountable and who has given us His Son as a pledge of His love. Father, may You grant us grace to trust You. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.